welcome to The Podluck, serving up bite-sized tastes of the best theology. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Grab a plate and let's dig in. It's another week. It is another chapter of the book of Matthew. We're finally out of chapter one, everybody, which is very exciting. It just took us three weeks to do it. No problem. Uh, I'm super grateful that you are tuning in again this week. Um, as always, would like to just take a moment to remind you to please rate and review the podcast on whatever app you're listening to. Um, helps other people to be able to find the podluck. Um, what we're doing here, and it just it's just a good idea. It's, it's great. It's encouraging to read what you write in your reviews. I love it. So please take a chance and do that, and I would very much appreciate it. That is great. We're just going to hop in today. Uh, I have a lot of things to say about the chapter that we're going to be looking to this week, and I don't want to waste any more time Um coming up with like random announcements and anecdotes to share with you. Oh, I do have one more thing to share with you though. Uh, we got a puppy uh, like a week and a half ago and I record in my house, which is very fancy, um, you know, uh, high level recording equipment and all, you know, sound panels. They're, they're my throw pillows. Let's, let's be real. They're throw pillows. So if you hear any little barks in the background, just know that that's, that's why that's what's going on. Um, we're, we're rolling with throw, throw pillow level of, uh, budget and production value over here, not like professional studio levels over here. So hopefully the audio is good and there are no little tiny barks, but if there are any, just know that that's why. And if you follow me on any social media, you can, you can see pictures of her because she's very cute. All right. For real. We're hopping into Matthew chapter 2 this week, and we're going to do the whole chapter in one week uh, instead of spreading it out over three weeks, again, because it's going to take us a real long time to get through Matthew if we do multiple, multiple weeks on every chapter. Matthew chapter 2 has some familiar and like really like hallmark level endearing stuff in it, and it has some truly horrifying things in it. Uh, it starts with the visit of the Magi, the three wise men, um, and how many of us grew up going to a church where there was some sort of pageant where you know, little kids ended up in bathrobes with plastic or um, paper bag crowns on their heads acting this story out, right? And then it ends with the slaughter of the innocents and King Herod uh, ordering the killing of infants throughout the kingdom. So, so really the, the range, the range in this chapter. I'm going to go ahead and just take a minute and read the text out loud. Um, if you would like, you're welcome to read along if you're in a position to do so. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and I'll do the whole chapter. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. 
When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Where is the Messiah to be born? And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men, and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there. Until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem that were two years old or under according to the time when he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was ruling in Judea in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what has been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Ooh, let's just take a breath with that for a second. I think sometimes if you've grown up with the Bible being very familiar, there's this way that we can approach the text as though it should only inspire us and not horrify us. And I think that that's a real disservice. You see, I think that the Bible doesn't just tell us about who or what God is like. It's a mirror for what humans are like, too. You know, just because it's written in the Bible doesn't mean that these are instructions for living life. You could take a verse out of context from this passage and say, 
this justifies the killing of innocent people. We know that there's lots of ways that we like to do mental gymnastics to justify killing of people we don't think deserve to live. Whether that's people in other countries who are caught in the crossfires of war, or whether they're people who sit on death row. There was just a study that for evangelical Christians, they would rather guilty people... No, wait. How do I say this correctly? They would rather an innocent person accidentally be killed or imprisoned for life than risk even a single guilty person going free. And we know that of the people who sit on death row in states where the death penalty still exists, that oftentimes it has very little to do with whether or not they actually committed the crime that they're being accused of. In many cases, it comes out later that they didn't actually do the crime. So we could look at a passage like this and we could pull a verse out and see, we'll see this just justifies it. The Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it. But I think that we do a disservice to the text then. I think we're supposed to be horrified. I think we're supposed to read this account of Herod and the fear and the cruelty and the just fury that he exhibits. And I think that it's supposed to make our stomachs turn, make us explode with flames shooting out of our head like anger and inside out. I think the Bible shows us what we're like as people if we're willing to see. Again, in this chapter, the author of Matthew is doing a lot of heavy lifting, evoking lots of imagery, dropping names, different prophecies, trying to ground Jesus firmly within the Jewish tradition. Now, if you read Jewish scholars, the, the way that the author is using prophecy here and pulling things out of Jeremiah and different prophets, it, you know, he's, he's making a case, uh, but it's not necessarily what the, the prophets were probably intending when, when they were offering their prophecies. <laughs> um, that's, that's a whole other issue in and of itself, and I, I don't want to dwell on that too, too much. What I want us to take away from this is, is still, just as in chapter 1, all of the things that Matthew is writing are meant to, to draw us back into other things as well. It's like a split screen. There's stories going on inside and underneath and in between the story that Matthew is telling. And so if you're not as familiar with the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, to, to go back and to look at some of those things that, that Matthew is evoking there. Find out oh, who, who was Rachel, why was she weeping for her children, and maybe go through and read the prophecies, not just the one verse, but the, the whole chapter or, or a greater chunk of the book. To look back at the story of Moses and see the parallels that the author of Matthew is intentionally creating here. That just like Moses, Jesus narrowly escapes being killed by a leader who's drunk on power. Just like Moses, Jesus ends up in Egypt 
and is carried out of there. This paralleling to the life of Moses continues on through the book of Matthew. But the author is very intentional about crafting it, even here. The thing that I want us to sit with most, though, in this chapter has to do with power, though. What happens to humans when we become so entranced by power over others and holding on to that power at all costs? I think that we see in Herod as he just loses all semblance of any sort of moral compass and orders the slaughtering of who knows how many children just because they were born in a certain location and within a certain window of time. I don't think we have to look too far to find examples in life today of ways that that way of holding on to power still animates our lives, our systems, the things that we are or are not willing to tolerate, the people whom we are willing to see and engage with their plight and those whom we will turn a blind eye to. It's easy to look at the Herods of the world, people who are gripping on to this earthly power, divine power be damned, and, and refusing to let go, white-knuckling their way through terrified of what would happen if that power went away. We can look at different presidential administrations in the United States. We can look at leaders around the world. And we can say, yeah, it's like that. Herod looks like a man so completely insecure and so violently attached to his power that he would put children in camps at the southern border that we would drop bombs in Syria. Yeah, that's what it's like. But what's more uncomfortable for me to look at is the role of the Magi in this equation. The, the wise men. In commenting on this passage, Justo Gonzalez writes that the Magi were indiscreet about their questions. They came from another land and they were studying the stars. Most of the commentators all agree that they were probably astrologers of some sort. They spent their lives doing this, looking at the stars, looking to the heavens for different information, wisdom, signs. And so they traveled to a different land. They traveled to a context that they weren't as familiar with, and they just began to ask questions. But they weren't discreet about them, and they were unaware of the political realities in Palestine at that time. And because of their indiscretion, because they just rolled in and started asking anyone they could find Hey, where, where is the Messiah going to be born? We saw his star. You know anything about that? Because of them, Gonzalez goes so far as to say what happened with the slaughter of the innocents was their fault. 
That doesn't really fit into the nativity scenes on our mantles very well. And he goes on to write this. He says, quote, Throughout history, one of the grave sins of Christians has been to be so preoccupied with other matters as to not take time to understand the reasons so many innocents suffer around us. You see, what Gonzalez points out is not just that Herod becomes so drunk on power that he causes violence and mass suffering, but that the wise men are so unaware of their position and the power of their presence, their questions, that they become part of the problem as well. That they show up meaning well, intending good, but the impact is devastation. And far too often I know in my life I've shown up in contexts that weren't familiar to me, whether I was serving in a different community on some sort of mission trip or in some sort of like ministry work or in a situation that was uh, racially diverse or where I was um, maybe more educated than other people around me or where I was in a different denominational tradition, right? There's so many different contexts that I've walked into and probably caused real harm, if I'm being honest. Because I wasn't willing to just listen and take it in or to do the work ahead of time to grasp the, the realities and the dynamics, the conversations, the hot buttons of the context to which I was walking into. I just assume that my intentions can be good, and so we'll just roll with that. But that's not how it works. The chapter ends with Jesus joining the ranks of those innocents who suffer around us without us seeing them. Jesus becomes a child on the run, a refugee, an undocumented migrant who shows up at the border. And so when we go looking for Jesus, we're always best served to steer our gazes away from the halls of power, from cathedrals and stained glass as much as I like it, and toward those we would rather not see, toward those that we just shake our heads or we feel overwhelmed because the problem seems so overwhelming. I don't know how to deal with it, so I'm just going to turn away. As I'm recording this, the Biden administration is sending FEMA to the southern border to help process undocumented and unaccompanied child minors, child minors, um, child migrants who are crossing the border in, in such high numbers that they can't process them all. And so 
there are more and more children going into these detention camps just because they don't know where to put them. And that's hard for me to look at, to be aware of, because I don't know how to solve it, but I know that I don't want Jesus in a cage. And I know that that's exactly where he is in this situation. And if I show up with my indiscreet questions, if I don't take into account the political realities, the things that are pulling on every angle of this, then I run the risk of becoming like the wise men. And in my just starry-eyed, literally, approach to things, causing harm with my indiscretion. Which isn't to say that we don't pay attention. We We should pay even more attention. But maybe it's an opportunity to put this piece of scripture in conversation with another and invite ourselves to be quick to listen and slow to speak. There's so many things that I don't know. So many realities that my privilege has insulated me from. I can't be an expert on those things. And so I'm served best by not pretending to be. But through it all, Matthew continues to pull on this thread of God being with us. And Anna Case Winters notes in her comment on this passage that God is with us in the place of our pain. That in this horrifying and hard chapter, yeah, God with us goes through all that too the terror and the fleeing and the leaving home, the uncertainty of it all. God's there too. Unwillingly, maybe. Forced into that situation by the powers of this world. God's with us there too. And so when we are in those moments ourselves, may we look for God with us. And when we are not in moments of crisis, moments of pain, may we be aware that God is with those who are suffering and not with those in the lap of power and luxury. Thanks so much for tuning in again this week. Uh, As always, I'll be over on Patreon on Friday with this week's rest stop in our Matthew Road Trip 
Um, so we'll be doing some reflective work on this passage. And if that sounds interesting to you, you can head over to Patreon and join the community there. Any level of support will get you access to those weekly reflection exercises. Um, please do take a time to rate and review. I appreciate anyone who takes time to do that. And feel free, if you enjoyed this episode, um, to share on social media. Um, that helps other people find out about the podluck as well. Y'all, I'm very excited. We've got some very cool interviews coming up um, in the coming probably like a month or so um, as we continue to walk through Matthew. We'll also probably take a few little like detours to, um, well, I usually, I've called them the dessert table in the past, but I feel like I need, need another road trip metaphor. We've got rest stops on Friday on Patreon. I don't know. Maybe these are like state parks. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, there will also be a couple interviews coming up with um, with folks not related to Matthew, um, just kind of little breaks from from the season, and those will come out on on a different day of the week. So you'll get like two podlucks that week: the Matthew one, and then the additional interview about different books that are coming out. Um, people that I find wildly interesting and want to introduce you to. Um, Anyway, so those are coming up too. So make sure that you have subscribed so that you don't miss an episode because um, you're going to want to hear all the stuff that I have coming up. I'm very excited. And I think that's all I've got. So for now, thanks so much for tuning in. As always, I've been your host, Megan Westra. Thank you so much. And tune in next time. And we'll dig in.